0: From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's White Coat Wellness, a show for doctors who are ready to improve their financial wellness. We know you work hard to help your patients, but you can't be at your best if you don't have your own finances in order. In White Coat Wellness, we highlight real-life stories from physicians and dentists to educate, encourage, and inspire you to personal, professional, and financial wellness. Now, from Spa Dameron Tenney, please welcome your host, Shane Tenney.
1: This episode of White Coat Wellness brought to you by Common Bond. simpler, smarter student loans for a brighter future at CommonBond.co. All right, welcome back. Uh, this is Shane Tenney with White Coat Wellness. Excited to have you with us again today where we're going to be talking about social media and, uh, and student loans, two topics that can strike fear and confusion on the heart of uh, many folks, especially those wearing white coats and juggling a busy schedule. And today we're gonna to try to cover both of them. My guest today is Dr. Sean Fox. Currently, Dr. Fox is a professor of emergency medicine and a professor of pediatrics and a part of the resident leadership team for the Emergency Medicine Residency Program at Carolina's Medical Center, part of the Atrium Healthcare Network in Charlotte, North Carolina. And in addition to his academic and clinical work. He also manages several educational websites geared toward the practice of emergency medicine. He's worked towards a podcast and just brings, I think, some good perspective about both our topics today. And so join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Fox. Sean, thanks for being here today.
2: Wonderful being here. Lofty goals, but I think we can achieve some of them.
1: One of the things I think that's fascinating about you and your story is how you've really embraced social media. something that can feel real daunting and confusion through podcasting, through blogs to serve your colleagues in your community. And and so maybe you just start by sharing us a little bit about how you got started with all that. Sure.
2: Most of my endeavors are uh, selfishly based. And I initially had Looked at some of these tools that we have at our fingertips as, as ways of improving myself, to be honest. I was asked a long time ago, back at the end of my residency in 2007, to help one of my mentors generate some online information. He was a gentleman who was on the cutting edge of uh, being innovative in and using some of the tools that physicians were just starting to become aware of, which is kind of silly to think about. Only like a decade or so ago, we were still quite infantile in our application of these tools. But nonetheless, I took it upon myself to write a weekly educational pearl, as it was called back then. And it became very useful for myself to have to think about how to deliver salient points in a concise fashion as he had kind of laid out the plan. They're supposed to be bite-sized pearls or nuggets. And when I graduated and moved down uh, from Baltimore to Charlotte, I realized that habit that I had generated became useful anyway. And then I thought, well, there's people here that will also potentially benefit from this as well. The information was initially geared just towards my colleagues in Baltimore well now I started to explore well what tools do I have that could make it more applicable to anyone anywhere and that was right around the time that you could make a your own website really you know pretty easily without having any coding knowledge again all of this I've done with being very naive to any real skill set of how to do this I just kind of mm. Dove in and kind of played with things until I could figure them out, and and around that time frame, we had also just started to have tools that you could do that. So, um, Mac Apple product had iWeb, which doesn't even exist anymore, but was like the first you can do it yourself, make a website, and I did that, and and through that, I just became a little bit more savvy with some of the skills. It led me to different avenues of encountering individuals who had similar ideas, and. From the social media standpoint, I was 200 percent against social media because I I didn't and I don't care what Tom Cruise had for lunch. If Lady Gaga is going on a, a field trip with her best friend, I just it doesn't impact my life. <laughs> and I've got too many other things to worry about. I'm, I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my wife. I'm worried about, you know, how to get to work with the construction on my road. Like that's the stuff that's I'm focusing on. So social media I was very against, but these as I started to dive into this realm, I realized that if you are a generator of content, if you are generating information and you just kind of slap it on a wall, but the room is dark, no one will see it. So you have to have a way to illuminate it, you have to have a way to broadcast it. And I started looking at myself as a, a broadcaster, someone who generates information and sends it out to the ether out there. Well, Other people on different bandwidths will pick up things in different ways. Maybe, you know, they are using Twitter to communicate. Well, I need to now know how to send that information to them. And maybe they are using LinkedIn or back in the day, you know, Google Plus or, you know, all these different social media tools. And I looked at them as just tools. And I started to realize I can now collaborate with individuals that are nowhere near me on topics that are very interesting and that we have in common. And now we can actually begin begin to move a needle. And through those conversations, I started to collaborate with individuals in New Zealand and Australia and in Europe and became kind of more invested in the web as the the actual physicality of uh, this enterprise of being interrelated with individuals that you don't physically touch or see and being able to produce content that they saw as valuable. And I could comment on things that they saw that I saw as valuable. And and we could start to really have interesting academic conversations. And I realized it's it's like, it's not social media that I'm using. I'm using a collaborative media. So there's nothing against individuals that want to talk about what you had for lunch. There is a a potential benefit for that of a, a social networking in that way. But from my professional standpoint, I don't want to intermingle those two realms because then I find it to be a very muddied water. Who am I listening to? Am I listening to Sean Fox, the professor of emergency medicine, who is giving me information about how to, you know, manage certain entities and certain problems? Or am I listening to Sean Fox who has a political agenda or who really loves hoagies? Like, I, I don't know that there's great utility and merging those two realms all the time. There are people that have a lot of vato and a lot of, you know, personality and, and that comes through. And, and some people do enjoy that. You're not going to see that with my, with what yeah. I post, it's going to be factual and you will never see anything about my family. You're not going to know where I'm going on vacation, mostly because I don't want you to try to find me there.
1: A high likelihood from most of your M- followers. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
2: Always. Yeah. Lots of selfie sticks taking pictures next to me. So, I like to keep the two worlds separate. And I, I strategically do that by talking about collaborative media from an academic standpoint and a professional standpoint. That also, I think, has its benefits in that now I can make sure I am acting professionally all the time when I do post things. As you know, before you hit the publish button, you're probably no, you're, that's like the most nervous I am. Like, of anything I'm getting ready to publish. I know that if once I hit that button, it doesn't, mm-hmm. I can't suck it back and like try to, you know, undo whatever harm was done. So I need to make sure it is of superior quality. I need to make sure that I'm not going to be offensive. Mm-hmm. I need to all the normal professional things that we would do right. that all of a sudden, if you start blending in social norms. Can get a little gray.
1: And clarify for us: how many blogs are you writing now, or how many different sites are you collaborating on? So, f- since two thousand and eight, and in uh,
2: was recent was revised in two thousand and ten, the PEDEM morsels, so PEDEM morsels, was published, and so that has about I can't remember how many posts in there. That's published weekly, so for the past you know decade, mm-hmm. um, and then we have. The EM Guidewire, which is really was generated for podcast uh, delivery. It's a website that week, or not quite weekly, but several times a month, have our residents in the emergency medicine program sit down and collaborate and come up with a podcast that um, is a series for topics of emergency medicine. And that's been in existence for the past year and some change. And then we also have a, a cmcecg.com, which is a, a EKG tool. We have CMC ED Masters, which is a, a website that's geared really for my colleagues. It has a bunch of tools they can use in the practice of medicine. There's MedEd Masters, which was one of my first ones that I made. And that one kind of exists as a, a portal for other interesting educational topics. But the main two ones are the PDM morsels and EM
1: guide wire where you have a, a, a national or global following and participation correct and and i know one of the questions i've heard from other folks that uh, in fact maybe even some listening today that that have thought oh i want to start something or i have information that i don't want just hanging in a dark room i want uh, to be able to get that out where people can collaborate on it, it being part of a large hospital system were there any loopholes or hurdles or things like that that you had to navigate just within the administration to, to start collaborating in, the, in the, the method that you are?
2: So the, the real answer is I just decided to do it myself. The PDM morsels are generated completely outside the confines of the work environment. So I didn't really feel I needed to include the multiple firewalls that exist once you start dealing with a, a larger corporation, they have obvious uh, self-interest and, and things can get delayed. I don't have time in my life for delays. I've got my own schedule that I need to keep. The EM Guidewire, interestingly, is published all within the confines of the office at the hospital and actually has started to garner some interest from other departments at the hospital but we've kept it also outside the firewall just there's no patient information there's no we don't speak of individual medical patients we speak of medical problems and we never use any identifying information that would you know be transferable or relatable back to an individual so in that way we can kind of keep the world separate that has made it much more fluid for me from a scheduling standpoint it then now puts the onus on me to do things. I can't ask, you know, the IT department to help me do things, but double-edged sword, um, which is a little bit easier for me to handle. My wife might look at me sideways when I'm sitting on the couch doing some writing or publishing, and she's like, I'm not sure what you're doing. You're not getting paid for any of this. And so it's I, I don't do woodworking. I don't have any other hobbies. So we call this a jobby. It's it's a fair amount of work, but it is my
1: jobby slash hobby. Yeah. How much time does it take? It sounds like you're keeping up with a lot of different places and yeah. things that and a lot of different plate spinning.
2: You know,
3: for you
2: a weekly, I, I mean, I've gotten much more efficient at it than I used to be. I was very clunky and and in the, the infantile stage, it took a really long time. But now I've got methods for rather rapid research of content. I can, you know, review literature pretty quickly. I've also lived long enough in the clinical environment so I can see the clinical questions, not just like what this paper on the surface is saying, like how it is applied, how it would be useful for one of my colleagues in the department, which is what all of the, the podcasts and all of the, the blog posts are really geared towards is some true clinical applicability. So in the course of just experiencing, you know, life and and living my job, as long as I have, it's afforded me the ability to kind of see kind of the paths that make it a little bit more interesting, the angles. So this week's morsel will be, it'll probably take me between six and eight hours in total to do from concept development to research to writing it, probably three hours and three hours for each. I wish I read faster. I don't. I'm just borderline literate, so it can take me a while.
1: Do you have somebody uh, proofread your copy before it goes out or an editor or anybody?
2: No, I don't. Okay. I, As I said before, though, I am the most anxious before I publish something, though, and because I've learned that the online community will fire back instantaneously when you've got something wrong or even typos. I've been hammered for a couple typos. <laughs> So I just reread it a bunch mm-hmm. uh, before I send it out. And how do you figure out what
1: topics you're going to cover?
2: Many times, it, you know, so I worked last night. If there, you know, we had a, a an encounter of someone with hypoglycemia, a low glucose level. And the question was, if they had taken a particular medicine, a sulfonylurea, what medicine would you give them to reverse this clinical picture? That'll probably be this week's morsel so. is so clinically I'm working and I'm seeing things and there's just enough stuff out there yeah I've you know we've got over 460 blog posts
1: but there's there's much more in the medical realm to dive into so you're not just the consultant you're also the practitioner correct yeah you know, again
2: right. many still a selfish endeavor yeah. right. like the a lot of times the questions the clinical questions that I write the answers to are the ones that I just asked myself the night before
1: yeah yeah and now I know you, in addition to your blogs, you've been working aggressively on podcasting over the last year. And you and your colleague, Dr. Allen, entered the local public radio station podcast contest. Yes. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and the uh, what that experience was like, what you learned.
2: So that was the Queen City PodQuest, um, which was developed by the, the uh, NPR affiliate here in Charlotte, WFAE. And we had been dreaming of topics that we wanted to to cover. And when we heard, actually, one of my residents heard on the radio that the PodQuest was coming into fruition into town, and we had already started our EM GuideWire. We're like, we should do something there. It's like, well, we'll we'll have to tailor it differently because NPR is you know looking for community stuff, not just you know what doctors want to know. And one of our focuses has been on educating our, our community. And in fact, I, I think all physicians are educators. Whether you're in academic medicine or community-based practice, you are an educator and the most important group of people you educate are not necessarily medical students or residents or other colleagues, but it's your your patients. And a lot of physicians know this to and probably not dissimilar from yourself. When you have an area of expertise, your neighbor is the one that's going to ask you some of the most interesting questions. So I'm sure you get a lot of neighborly questions about you know what I should do with my money. I get a lot of neighborly questions about, hey, Johnny or Susie fell down. Do I need to take them to the emergency department? Do I need to go to urgent care? They have a fever. What do we do? Is his ear infected? So the purposes of our Next Door Docs podcast that we're going to develop was to help answer some of those questions. And the the whole adventure that we went on with WFE was really fun. We got to hang out with a lot of their talent, and you know, see how they work, and see what not only tools they use, but their preparation, and a whole lot of work goes into a little bit of time on the radio. I'll tell you that it was really impressive yeah. from
1: what you had said previously. Yeah it's, yeah,
2: it's really profound, um, and humbling. Really, you're like, oh, I'm just gonna sit down and like talking to this microphone, it'll be great. And then you realize, oh, the people that do that really spend a lot of time honing that craft. We came in second place, which was actually really exciting. We got first place for the fan favorite. So overall, we'll, we'll, we'll take that as a victory. And we still have that on our to-do list to generate that. And hopefully in the next year, we'll have that out in
1: publication. That'll be neat. Well, yeah. I can't wait to uh, help give that a shout out once it goes live uh, exactly. here. So I want to ask, I said at the top of the uh, the episode here that we're going to talk a little bit about your work in social media and collaborating, uh, but also I know you've got a real perspective on education as the uh, director of the emergency medicine department. So when we get back from this break, I want to ask you a couple of questions about that.
3: Sure. I'm Will Coster, and on this episode's White Coat Wisdom, sponsored by Common Bond, we're talking about student loans, specifically paying back your student loans. You worked hard for your degrees, and chances are you're one of the many physicians or dentists that had to borrow quite a bit to get through school. My question for you is, when is the last time you thought about your repayment strategy? If you're not pursuing public service loan forgiveness or on an income-driven repayment plan then you should really consider reducing your interest rates through student loan refinancing. In fact, our team at Spot Emron has partnered with CommonBond to offer our clients discounted rates that you can't find anywhere else because we know it's an important part of your finances. CommonBond has helped thousands of physicians and dentists save money and get out of debt quicker. The honest truth, in my own experience, is that they offer simply amazing customer service. They also have borrower protections like up to 24 months of forbearance just in case you run into any financial difficulties and need to press pause in your monthly payments. Also, if you're still in training but you have your job lined up, you can refinance now and keep payments on hold until you start working. This is a great way to start saving on interest sooner and build some cash before you transition into practice. If you're interested to see if refinancing is the right repayment strategy for you, you can head to cbpartner.co slash SDT, or you can reach out to our team at Spotted 10 directly. Again, that link is cbpartner.co slash SDT.
1: Okay, Dr. Fox, you have been serving, I guess just recently, uh, been promoted to the director of the emergency medicine department at, uh, Carolina's yeah. medical center for the residency program. yeah. Right. So, um, and I know you're really passionate about that. What, what do you like best about that work in overseeing residents? There's, you know,
2: just a, a significant amount of positive energy when you're around young, brilliant minds. Again, as I had said before, a lot of things I do are really just selfishly, um, uh, you know, geared and I find that personally I work best when I'm surrounded by individuals who are not only passionate but super inquisitive and ask me questions that maybe make me a little uncomfortable because then means I have to go home and continue to refine my own skill set. What your listeners might not quite know is the the gem that Carolina's Medical Center Emergency Medicine Residency Program is. It's been in existence since 1976. And emergency medicine really came into being just a few years before that. It's a a relatively young profession. And the practice of emergency medicine at Carolina's medical center has been at the top across the spectrum, across the country, is one of the premier places to train. It's a very unique environment. And what also makes it extremely unique is that it is a community-based hospital still. You know, it's not a university. It's got all the resources that a large quaternary center would have, but our, our focus still is on assisting our, our neighbors in our community. So the individuals that come to train with us are not just proficient and brilliant and from all across the country, but come with the understanding that they're coming to serve our community, which is a little bit different perspective than uh, some other training programs, which are also great, but I think we have the, the best of both worlds and we get the, the cream of the crop, just the, the top notch people to train and the people that are training, everyone except for myself is unbelievably brilliant and also internationally renowned for their areas of expertise. And so you get to work alongside These people that are passionate about caring for patients, patient people that are passionate about teaching others how to appropriately care for patients is just a really fun and energizing area to be. And it's not often that you get to say that about your job. So the practice of emergency medicine is in itself is fascinating and entertaining at times, but definitely energizing. But then you take that and you put it into this context of these amazing humans that I get to work with. And it's really quite gratifying to see them go on and and mature and move out into our region or even go back to the states they came from and continue to train others and practice caring for people. Mm -hmm. It makes you a little paternalistic, but very kind of proud parent like. So that's the,
1: the most fun. I know that one of the things that we see in interacting with residents and and fellows week in and week out that you're certainly aware of is just the the I guess I might go so far as to say the word crisis around student loans and just the enormous debt that um, that folks are finishing medical school with. I I know you had kind of a frustrating experience just personally with your own student loans. I wondered if you might talk a little bit about that and what I guess what your opinion on the topic is.
2: So I thought we were just having fun here, but now you're just going to like—it's oh, all you know, business. <laughs> you know, throw me off the building. Here comes gravity. Yeah, no, that wasn't fun at all. I did a five-year residency, so you can, you know, kind of put off paying your loans for only so long. And unfortunately, my time for that was longer or was shorter than my time of residency. So I started to make, you know, changes with my. Loan repayment plans towards the fourth year and then into my fifth year, had the opportunity to consolidate my loans, which at that time, because of the, how the stock market was and financial institutions, I had a really good deal with my interest rate, which I thought was phenomenal. And then this past year, I realized that maybe that consolidation was not the best advice because or at least the way I consolidated my loans back then was not the best advice because it led to me being unable to have the loan forgiveness program applied to me which was a, a big kick in the gut particularly when you know we've never missed a payment we you know my wife is super on top of all this stuff I am not but she's super on top of all this and has always been and we were very excited when we thought we might be able to qualify and then it was uh, again a big bit of gravity when yeah. we realized it didn't work out. You know, when I think about how we train physicians, we don't do a very good job of training the clinicians on management of their own finances, and that's that's a very that's not a novel statement I just made. But maybe the perception would be different if we. roped it into the concept of wellness because we are now starting to pay more attention to that, not just, you know, physical wellness, but emotional wellness, psychiatric wellness of the, the clinician. And we know that that's really important. Well, there's a large percentage of that that is wrapped into, or at least, you know, married to your finances. We know that, you know, marital discord happens because of finances. We know that, all kinds of unrest
1: internally and
2: externally happen because of financial misgivings and is there
1: something that that you see with I mean I, I so appreciate your comment and couldn't agree more certainly that's um, our perspective that there's a whole lot wrapped into wellness and and one aspect is finances and and the opposite of that causes an enormous amount of stress mm-hmm for the the physician, the resident, uh, just trying to figure out what to do, is there? Do you have any ideas, any suggestions? How do we get not just information, which is readily available on the internet, but how do we how do we better help provide the advice or the counsel or the the guidance to folks when they're coming through and out of training?
2: It's I think a very challenging thing to resolve. Yeah, because you've but got a, a
1: huge clinical slate of the, information that needs to be. It would be it would be
2: like there's no way we're going to make a the vast majority of uh, medical personnel experts in their finances right away. What we want to do, though, is make them at least fluent in the language of which other financial individuals like yourself speak. So that then when you do read something online or you do find this information And then you speak to someone else who has even, you know, a little bit more wisdom about it. You can come to your own conclusions and with their advice. What I find is when you don't know anything and you then try to, you know, read something online and then two you know, items below that one on Google is a thing that says the exact opposite. And you're not even exactly sure the terms we're talking about. And then you go speak to someone else who is supposed to have more wisdom about it or more experience with it, it's hard for me to develop a, an understanding that I can make an actionable plan with. So then, unfortunately, a lot of people then just rely on, well, do I trust this person who's telling this information? And we know that there's a lot of good people out there and there's incredulous people out there mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And just the same as within the medical profession, there's, you know, a lot of very altruistic physicians and there's a lot of those that are maybe less so. So it does require a rapport to be developed, I think, with an individual who is more expert in that language. But it still is incumbent upon us as individuals to at least learn some of the
1: some of the language so I can have a conversation with you. What advice, if we, if there's somebody listening who's a resident in your program or another hospital system around the country, what's the advice of the older, wiser physician to them in terms of, here's my best tip to you as you get started?
2: What would have been really nice is if I would have started sooner in having more encounters with conversations with people like yourself. Now, I didn't move here until... Shortly after I or before I met you, but if I would have had the opportunity to have someone who maybe was not necessarily looking for me to invest, or you know, again as a as a medical student as a resident, I have got squidouche. We've got no money, but squidouche to, technical term there. It is yeah, okay. Yeah, for all you kung fu panda experts out there, <laughs> if you can start to you know, it's just like learning Spanish. I can read it in the book, but it's not helpful until I have to sit with someone and try to speak Spanish. And yes, I'm gonna be terrible at it and they're gonna be their ears are gonna hurt. But over time, the more I do that, the better the conversation goes. And I think what have been helpful is being able to have those conversations earlier in my career, so that when I when it did come time for me to transition to actually having decent money. It wasn't such a big gear shift. I had heard these things before. I had understood these terms before. I was able to ask better questions. That's the other thing is when you start and you're so naive, you don't even know what questions to ask. And you can get into a scenario. And, and I know of individuals that have gotten to scenarios where they're just spoon fed things and they're like, yeah, let's do that. And then that maybe wasn't the brightest plan. Whereas if they had a little bit more knowledge, they would have asked different questions that would have led the conversation a different way. So how do those encounters, how do those earlier conversations happen? We can do it on our own. That's challenging. We can have medical schools, which I think would probably be the, the wisest, have medical schools have a, an unbiased, essentially course for medical finances. By the way, as you you know, in your last podcast, you had an individual who then had to learn not just personal finances, but business finances. So that's a whole nother thing. If I'm going to go work for myself and have a, you know, set up my own office and then have employees, good Lord, I would have no concept of what to do with that. So in medical school, I think that would probably be the best first place and actually have a course of medical finances that... I've heard a little bit across the country it's um, still relatively sparse, harder to do in residency just because there's so much other stuff that has to be consumed, which isn't, I, I mean, medical school has a lot of stuff to be consumed too, but their timeframe is different and, and what they have to do in that timeframe is, is a little bit more lenient, but starting the conversation earlier so that when it comes time to actually have to apply your knowledge, it's not as
1: foreign I'm going to ask the same question, but a different way. What, In retrospect, what do you think was one of the best financial decisions that you and Malia made as you started in practice after you moved to Charlotte?
2: So for me, it was marrying Malia. Okay. <laughs> that was the best because she had no debt and she had the mindset of there should be no debt and always paying everything off. And then she married a guy that was all debt and still has lots of debt. For her, it – was the conversations that she and I had together about how limited our information was, how limited our understanding was, and that made us uncomfortable. So then reaching out to you. So one, having individuals that I worked with that I trusted who then referred me to someone they trusted, which was super helpful because essentially I think the first year we were here is when we met you, so 2008. And that was eye-opening, just being able to, you know, you presented all the the giant binder of information with pretty graphs and and things, and I like graphs. So just seeing the information conveyed in a way that I understood it was super helpful. Having a wife that told me I didn't need a really fast car right away. She did let me buy a flat-screen TV first in 2008. That was a big deal. Not
1: so much of a big deal anymore, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. So kind of consistent with your earlier answer, which is even for your own in looking at your own life, one of the best things for you was just kind of getting started early. Don't yeah. don't keep your head in the sand. Don't walk around in the fog. Just reach out, find somebody to help and get you pointed in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That savings. We all know that that compounded interest really is a powerful thing. And starting sooner is the way to go. Yeah. And the converse of that is is
1: very detrimental. Yeah. Sean, thanks for uh, for being with us today. Can you tell everybody how to, uh, how to follow you on Twitter? How do they track you down?
2: So the easiest one is at PDM Morsels, so P-E-D-E-M-M-O-R-S-L-E-S. But there's also at EM Guidewire and at Nextdoor Docs, because why only have one Twitter feed when you can have three? <laughs> Excellent. Sean, thanks so much for being with us today. It was really great being here.
3: I'm Will Coster, and on this episode's White Coat Achievements, a segment that highlights noteworthy achievements by your friends and colleagues, we're highlighting a pediatrician and what she's doing to help fight youth depression and suicide. Dr. Ume is the founder and CEO of Teen Alive. It's an online wellness resource dedicated to creating awareness for and fighting bullying, depression, and suicide in children, teens, and young adults. Dr. Ume has a very powerful but yet very tragic story for her catalyst for starting Teen Alive and leaving her attending role. As a practicing pediatrician, she was meeting with a 15-year-old patient who she believed to have depression, but his mother denied him treatment. Later that year, he died by suicide in front of his family at a barbecue. Now, in addition to what she does through Teen Alive, blogging, speaking, and authoring a book... Dr. Ume has started her own direct primary care practice to focus on high-risk children and teens and to change the stigma around depression. Her ultimate goal is to save more children and prevent teen suicides. We think she's well-deserving of this white coat achievement, and we wish her the best of luck. As always, if you know someone wearing a white coat and is achieving something noteworthy, feel free to drop us a line, send us an email. We'd love to hear about it. But again, this episode's White Coat Achievement goes to Dr. Ume and what she's doing to help fight teen suicide. Before
1: we sign off today, I want to remind you that we're planning a series in the upcoming months on marriage and money. And so if you and your spouse or a friend and their spouse that you want to volunteer would be willing to tell us how you've navigated money issues in your marriage, please drop me an email at shane at whitecoatwell.com. Finally, uh, please take a minute to subscribe. Also give us a review on iTunes or Google Play. We'd love to have you join our closed Facebook community called White Coat Wellness, uh, specifically to help you connect with others in medicine or dentistry who want to share life together. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you back here next time.
0: This episode of White Coat Wellness is over, but you're not alone on your journey toward financial wellness. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists with their financial planning for over 60 years, and we'd love to answer any questions that would be of help to you. Visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Once again, that's sdtplanning.com, and we'll see you on the next episode of White Coat Wellness.